Okay, so today's sermon is going to be a little bit different, uh, given that this is the first time that we're doing life groups uh, in this format. Uh, the core leaders and I, we thought that it would be a great idea to explain why, uh, explain the format that you're going to start seeing uh, as you go to a life group this week. Now, we're still in our community series, and we've transitioned from the why of community to the how of community, what we, what we should see happen once we get into these groups. And what I'm hoping to communicate this morning is that every part of what we're doing in these life groups, that none of it is arbitrary or something that we chose without good reason, but each part has a theological reason behind every component, okay? Where every part is playing a role in fostering a healthy community and hopefully growth in the individual. So I want you guys to think about today almost like a life group orientation meeting. I think we're small enough to do an orientation meeting as a sermon uh, so that we're on the same page. And as you guys go in, uh, you guys know what to expect. And even if you're not signing up for a life group, I think it's important because these things that we do in life group are things that we're going to be doing as a church as a whole. And it's good to know why we do what we do. Okay. Now, the format of life group meetings uh, that we're going to go with is what's called the four W's. Okay. And they stand for welcome, Worship, word, and work. And these are the different parts of what will happen in a given meeting on a weekly basis. And once again, this is not random, but this is drawn out from Scripture, and especially from our passage for today in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Okay? Now, before I start unpacking, let me just give you a bit of context on this passage. Um, if you guys have ever read the book of Acts, you guys know that uh, it's, a two, it's the second part of a single volume uh, written by the Gospel of Luke, uh, the writer of Gospel of Luke, which is Luke. And at the end of the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus dies on the cross, he resurrects, he spends 40 days eating um, fish and other stuff with them. Uh, he's like walking through walls. Um, and he uh, also teaches them about the kingdom of God and the mission given to the apostles. But before he like ascends into heaven, he tells them what? To wait in the upper room and that the Holy Spirit is going to come to empower them to do the work that he has assigned them. Now, what's interesting is that one of the first things that happen immediately after the Holy Spirit comes is what? Is community. And what I love about, what I love about our passage today is that it gives us, it actually gives us a glimpse into the different components of what community looked like for the early church. And and it actually aligns really well with the four W's that we're going to be practicing in our own weekly meetings. And so the verse that I want to focus on is verse 42. And this is what it says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Okay? And here we see four parts of community that they were devoted to when they met together. Now, I'm not going to go in order. I'm going to go in the order of the four W's. So you guys kind of get an idea of what each night is going to look like. So the first W is welcome, and this is how we're going to start our time during our life group meetings and where we are going to eat dinner together uh, before we get to the other components. Uh, now, we see this in this passage where it says that they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, let me give you, give you guys something to reflect on. Um, I don't know if you guys have thought about this, but isn't it interesting that the Christian faith well, uh, its primary ritual and sacrament is centered on a meal, right? A meal we call communion or the Lord's Supper. 
Now, in our modern churches, uh, I think for the past four or five hundred years, we've kind of minimized it to like eating a piece of like wafer or bread and like grape juice. Now, like it comes in like a package, right? But the early church, they had what's called what the love feast, right? Where they would the church would actually be around the table and have an actual meal to remember the breaking of Jesus' body and the shedding of his blood. And it's interesting to me that Jesus wanted eating together a meal to be the central way to remember his sacrifice. And in some ways, it shouldn't really surprise us at all. I mean, in the Gospels, Jesus is essentially on a food tour, right? Some people actually make the comment that Jesus eats his way through the Gospels, right? <laughs> sitting, uh, sitting together with sinners, Pharisees, tax collectors, sharing a meal together. So much so, do you guys know what Jesus was known for? What his label was? That he was a glutton and a drunkard. That's how much he partied, right? And when you read through the gospel, it makes you wonder, what was it about a meal uh, and sharing a table with someone that Jesus would use it as the main vehicle for ministry? Uh, You see, in the ancient world, um, table fellowship was not just a meal. It wasn't just eating, but it was actually symbolic of real relationship. If you sat with someone to eat with them, it signified to everyone around you that you affirmed them and that there was a deep connection and level of intimacy and relationship. Like you would never eat with your enemy or someone outside of your social class. Um, And especially those who were deemed as sinners. And This is why the Pharisees were constantly offended that Jesus would eat with tax collectors and with prostitutes and with these sinners. It wasn't the meal itself, but what it symbolized. They could not fathom that a rabbi of such status would enter into a real relationship with those kinds of people. You see, there's something intimate about eating together. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if this has happened to you, but have you ever eaten one-on-one with like a stranger or like someone you don't know? No, you guys have never done that before? Uh, this one time, I remember uh, my wife, she was hanging out with her college roommates. But then the, one of the girls, her husband had to come. But then I think the girls wanted their alone time. But I never met this guy. So we had to eat together for like three hours. Like it was super, and it's super awkward, right? It's super, it's, it's kind of uncomfortable. Because when you eat, when you're eating with someone, it's actually a very intimate act. And you know, when I think about Jesus' ministry, I just imagine that it was at the dinner table where prostitutes, sinners, outcasts got their first opportunities to share their stories, to be seen, to be loved, to be heard, to not be dismissed as someone who was unlovable and unacceptable. I'm sure they could not believe that someone of Jesus' status was actually sitting with them in their home, having a meal with them. But it was over a meal where deep connections were made where healing happened, where people's stories were heard, where people felt their sense of belonging satisfied for the first time. There is power in eating together. I don't know if you guys ever thought that. Okay, let me just give you some statistics if you guys don't believe me, okay, Uh, to prove this from outside of the Bible. Um, Researchers have shown, this is very important for the parents in this room, uh, children who don't eat dinner regularly with their uh, parents are 40% more likely to suffer from obesity, uh, more prone to drug use, uh, alcohol abuse, anxiety, depression, lower graduation rates. But children who regularly eat with their parents and have family dinners 
do much better in all those things that was mentioned, higher graduation rates and healthier overall. So there are some experts who actually say that the way to solve society's problems is to have more family dinner together. And in some ways, this is so true. Think about your own life, right? Some of the most powerful moments, moments where you felt most love, where you felt the most peace and comfort was around a table with friends and family, eating good food, joking, laughing, crying, sharing about your life. Because it's the one place where time slows down and the need to be productive is laid down and you open yourself up to one another. All this to say is that the welcome part, I know some of you would be tempted to skip this eating part, maybe just come late a little bit, but the eating part is not a side thing that leads to the main thing that we're trying to do in life group. But it is one of the main things that we're trying to do. And this is something that I, I, I've been telling the leaders is, we get comfortable, not when we have discussions, we get comfortable in those informal settings during dinner where we're like joking around with each other, where we're updating about life, right? And so that's really important. Now, just to add another side reason for eating together, um, this is just a practical note. On the nights that you guys come to life group, you guys are going to have had a whole day of working uh, where you're stressed, where you're anxious. Some of you have studied uh, for a full day. You need time to transition from productive mode to engaging in spiritual things. And the meal gives you that buffer time to transition, to slow your heart and your pace down to get to that place. And really, the second W serves a similar function. Now, the second W is worship. Uh, I'm not going to say too much on this one, uh, but this is a time where we're going to transition from the meal to center our hearts on God. And we're going to just spend maybe five, ten minutes either singing a song or praying or doing some type of activity to acknowledge the presence of God. You know, as I mentioned last week, we're always in a hurry. And we, I don't know, for me, even as a pastor, it's hard to find moments where I am consciously aware of God's presence, where we are acknowledging it before God. And so we're going to spend this worship time acknowledging that He is the one that's going to make our time fruitful, where we're going to invite the Spirit, where it's not going to be necessarily the leaders or the structure or the people around us that's going to make this time powerful, but it's actually the Spirit of God present within us that he's going to take the sharing, the eating, um, the joking around, and use those as a means to bless the people in that room. You know, um, there is power in being aware of God's presence. You know, uh, I have a group of friends uh, from back home who I meet over Zoom once a month uh, ever since I got here, and they check, check in on Jesse and I, and we pray and all that kind of stuff. And I was actually telling them about kind of the recent hardships I've been having with my firstborn son, Micah. Uh, Micah's three, and some people call this stage being a three-nager um, because just like a teenager, they're full of emotions, they're, they're stubborn, they have a lot of opinions, and, but they also don't have the ability to regulate their own emotions. And so the combination of having a toddler who's like on the brink of having a meltdown like any second uh, and a newborn, it's been pretty chaotic to be honest. And it's all normal, but it doesn't make it any less hard. I'm sure the parents uh, understand, right? But as one of our friends was praying for us, she just saw a picture of Jesus next to Micah during one of his meltdowns. And she reminded us that even in those moments that Jesus is present, 
that he's present with us and that God doesn't waste anything. And in that moment, it was so comforting to know that Jesus is present in our home, right? In the midst of the chaos, I constantly forget that Jesse and I are not parenting Micah on our own, but the one who loves him infinitely more than we do is the one that is parenting and using our poor attempts at parenting well and taking it to love and form Micah. And it's interesting because the atmosphere of a space changes when there is an awareness of God's presence. It changes the way we parent. It changes the way we even love one another during one of our meetings. We recognize that there is a greater power at work in that space. And so we need to slow down and acknowledge that Jesus is in the midst of our life group meetings. Now, um, now the third part of our life group meetings is the third W, which stands for word. Okay? Uh, I want you guys to listen up here. This is going to be our main kind of bulk of our time together. Now, look with me in, again in our passage where it says that they were devoted to the apostles' teachings. Okay? Now, these teachings probably included the Old Testament, uh, but also the teachings that uh, the apostles received from Jesus, uh, which make up the New Testament as we have it today. In other words, their time together was centered on the Word of God shaping and forming them into more like Jesus. And for us, this means that our time together is going to be centered not on our sharing or our opinions or our advice and wisdom from our own experience, although those are going to be important things, but it's going to be centered on the Word of God to guide us in our lives. And this is why our discussion time is going to be based on the sermon. And I know for some of you, this doesn't excite you very much, uh, that we're going to talk about the sermon. But let me make a case for why it's the best format and better than other formats, okay? I'm going to give you four good reasons. The first one is that it increases biblical fluency, okay? Now, what do I mean by this? Can we uh, turn to the next slide? Now, what do I mean by this? The point of our group meetings, as I said, is formation, Okay? Right? We're all on this journey to become more like Jesus together as a community. And what this means is that we need to learn how to take the Word of God, to process it, and to, with, to learn to, with wisdom, apply it appropriately into our lives in a way that leads to our flourishing. Many of us, we know and have even memorized Scripture. But very few of us use it as the matrix and the framework through which we make decisions about our lives or even about our identity. And the thing is, the sermons on Sundays are general teachings, right? That you are accountable to prayerfully process and to apply specifically to your lives. In other words, we need to become fluent in the Bible. And I would say most Christians are not fluent in the Bible. And why do I, why do I use the word fluent? You know, when you're fluent in a language, that doesn't mean you just know a lot of words. Right? It means that you have enough experience, that yet you're well-versed enough to use it appropriately in a given situation. In the same way, when we discuss a sermon on a personal level with community, we are learning to take the text that was preached and process it and to apply it appropriately into our lives. I think one of the biggest weaknesses that I've seen in the years I've done ministry is people do not practice enough taking God's word and learning how to apply it to their life. They're too dependent on the pastor to do it for them. But in community is a space where you are practicing that with your own 
with, uh, with your brothers and sisters, okay? Now, let me just expand this a, a bit. Now, I think one of the advantages of, okay, so this is a, just a pet peeve of mine. So I don't know if you guys vibe with this or not, but I've seen small groups very easily devolve into just weekly complaining sessions, which is fine. Um, <laughs> but we end up just sharing the same struggle over and over and over and over. Because, I mean, our struggles don't change like every week, right? It's like the same thing over and over again. And maybe I'm insensitive, but to me, it gets a bit repetitive and a little bit boring, right? But when you place the sermon or the biblical text at the forefront, we can share those same struggles over and over. But the different sermons, week in and week out, challenge us to think about those same struggles through a different lens, providing insight we might never have found if we simply and only made life groups about personal sharing, right? Yes, we want to hear everything that you're going through, but allow the Bible to shed light on your issues in ways that might surprise you, okay? Now, the second reason, uh, I'll go through these quicker, uh, is to increase in self-knowledge. When we are going to life group just with sharing, we are relying on our own self-awareness to grow, okay? But when you have to discuss a certain text, it forces you to think about areas of your life that you might never think of because the text calls you to it. And I believe that the Word of God is alive, and He knows you better than you do. And the Word of God will point you and expose and reveal things in your life that you might not be aware of, but is more important than what you think is more important. Does that make sense? And, you know, it's kind of like this. You know, when I uh, first bought Jesse's engagement ring, uh, as you guys, you know, the guys know, it's very stressful. I don't know. These days, the girls pick it, so I don't know how it is. But back in the days, we had to choose it. Uh, it was very stressful. Um, and, but when I found the diamond that I want, like I picked it up and I like looked at every single angle to make sure it's like good, right? And this is what we're doing on, in our weekly uh, meetings. You're taking your struggles and your identity issues. You're using the scripture text to look at that in different angles to learn more about yourself and who God is. You're going outside of the angle that you have naturally as a person. And this is why you know, we're going to do the Gospel of Mark in the future, but why I love, why most pastors say you should preach, not topically, even though that's what we're doing right now, uh, but through scriptures, because it forces you to think about things outside of what the pastor wants to talk about, okay? Now, the third reason is better engagement. Uh, you guys don't have to read another book if we're doing a book study, all right? You guys don't have to study more. All you have to do is come on Sunday, and you come, and you're ready to go, okay? The fourth thing is it's the best format for newcomers. They won't find themselves in the middle of a study that you guys are in and feel lost, right? They won't feel like they don't know what your struggles are and all that kind of stuff. They've probably come on Sundays, which means that they are going to be in the same place that you guys are. So it's the easiest way for a newcomer to come in. Okay, so those are uh, the four reasons. Now, the last W is work. Um, now, this is the part of the night where we are going to essentially pray for each other. Now, one of the things that I want to really emphasize is um, this idea of the priesthood of all believers. Uh, I don't know if you guys know, but Ephesians 4 says that it's not my job to do the ministry here. Okay? My job is to equip you to do the work of ministry. And that means that your space to do that ministry is really in life groups, where you are able to exercise your spiritual gifts to build each other up through prayer, through a word of encouragement, through bringing a meal, through whatever the case may be, this is the way that you are to exercise your faith and your thing, okay? 
I know that was a lot. I know it felt more like a lecture and like a orientation meeting, but I felt like we just needed to kind of know all these things so that when we are engaging in these different four W's that we know um, why we're doing it, okay? Now, let me just uh, leave you with two thoughts. And if you zoned out the whole time, this is the time to listen, okay? Um, so let me leave you with two thoughts. Um, the first thing is that if you want to know the fullness of God, you cannot know who God is without embedding yourself in community, okay? Uh, you know, there was a story uh, about, that I read about C.S. Lewis, and he was part of this uh, crew, uh, which included J.R. Tolkien, and they would meet on a weekly basis to have some beer, and they would talk about their latest works. And this group was called the Inklings. They're very famous. Uh, I mean, I would love to be in that crew, right? There's C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien. Tolkien, if you guys don't know, he wrote Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Um, and so these are like intellectual giants, and they're having these conversations. And um, he tells this one story where one of their close friends in the Inkling, he passes away. And he had an interesting realization after a few weeks. You know, after the mourning period, he thought that maybe since there were less people in his group, he would get to know his friends like Tolkien a lot better. There would just be more time, right? He would have more access, more of their time, a bigger share of their attention. But what he realized was that with the loss of his friend, a part of Tolkien was also lost. Because there are parts of Tolkien that can only be brought out by the friend who had died. And so when his friend passed away, that part of Tolkien was also lost forever. A part that Lewis would never be able to know. This is what he writes. Uh, if you could put up the quote. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all of his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In other words, there are parts of you that can only be known or brought out by your spouse, right? There, or other parts that can only be brought out by your parents or other parts that can only be brought out by your best friend. One person cannot know every side of you. To be fully known, you have to be known by a community. And in the same way, we are not smart enough or big enough to call the fullness of God into activity, to bring to light every side of God. We need others to see what they see in God and share it with us, to meditate on Scripture, to share our insights, to see what they see. Like, for instance, some of you see the grace of God a lot clearer than I do because of your personality, because of your experiences. Some of us, we see other parts of God, His faithfulness better because of our own experiences. But you will never be able to see those different facets if you are not sharing within community. You will only be limited to your own perspective. Does that make sense? That's thought number one, okay? Thought number two, and it's the word devotion. I know that all of us, um, we're going to have expectations of what life group should look like. Even as I talk about life group, you have, you have this vision of what life group should be, what it used to be like, and all these things. And oftentimes what keeps us away from community are the disappointments, the pains, and the un unmet expectations that we've experienced before. These things, because the first month is going to be exciting, okay? Right? Oh, it's new, everything, everyone's cool, whatever, right? 
And then a month in, it's going to start, it might get boring. Maybe you don't like the way the leader leads or maybe, maybe you don't, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe you don't, maybe you don't like the food. I don't know. Uh, people think of all sorts of things, right? But I want you to, uh, I want you to, I want to remind you of something. Sometimes what hinders our devotion is the ideal community that we have in our minds and the expectation that our community should live up to it. Uh, let me explain it like this. Um, you know, a friend of mine, uh, one of my best friends, she told me that her parents uh, struggled in their marriage for the first 10 years, always fighting. Uh, and it was just full of disappointment and a lot of these things. But something changed in the 10th year because her mom realized something. And what she realized was that for all those 10 years, she had a picture in her mind of what a perfect husband looked like. And because her husband failed to live up to to those impossible expectations, she was constantly disappointed and angry with him. She realized that the whole time she was not in love with the husband that was in front of her, but with a perfect husband that she created for herself in her own mind. And it wasn't until she let go of those expectations that her marriage began to heal and to flourish. Do you guys see that? Some of us, we like the idea of community more than the community that we're in, right? And we have these expectations. We talk about, you know, it should be this way or that way. Why is this person like this? Why can't, why can't be like, them, like me? Or why do we sing that song or whatever? But here's the thing. God never told us to make a perfect community. He just told us to love the people right in front of us, all right? And let me just kind of give you a harsh truth. The fact that you're here makes this an imperfect community, right? And when you go look for a perfect community, if there is one, the moment that you get there, it becomes an imperfect community because we're all broken, right? We all have ways that we contribute to the brokenness of this community. The call was never to create a perfect community. The call was to love the community that God has given to us. So let me just uh, end with this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. Okay, amen? Okay, why don't we pray?